0: Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising.
1: The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World
2: Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello and welcome to the World Business Report podcast from the BBC World Service. Namaste, I'm Devina Gupta and on this edition we head to Czech Republic, India and China. We find out, has a lunar new year revived the spirits of China's economy? Where is the global shipping industry three months after the attack by Houthi fighters in the Red Sea?
1: Air freight rates have jumped to about 150% of what they used to be. The demand for trying to get things out of India has increased by about 80% via sea freight. So the costs are astronomical.
2: Palmer's protests in Czech Republic and in India, why a leading digital payments company, Is in trouble. So stay with us. But we start the program with the latest GDP figures or growth numbers from Israel. The data there shows the economy shrank by just under 20% in the fourth quarter from the prior three months. This indicates how the Gaza conflict is taking a toll on the economy, which is 500 billion dollars worth. So let's get in Lucy Kutz, who's investment director, J.M. Finn and deputy head of York office to get to know a little bit more about this. Lucy, how are you reading these numbers? What's behind the economy shrinking in Israel?
1: Well, you're absolutely right, Davina. This is all about really the the conflict um in in uh in Palestine and Israel. And confidence naturally has plummeted. So we've seen a a near 30% drop in the consumer. That's you and me. Uh but also importantly, a near 70% fall uh by investment by businesses. And that's that's you know, uh, huge in any in any terms. And so we've seen a halt in residential building, and that's because reservists have been called up. And there's also been a reduction in Palestinian workers. So, um, And we've also seen government spending going up nearly, nearly 100% because of the conflict. Um, however, um, oddly, the, the shekel is slightly weakened, but it's had a good recovery since uh, the October attacks. Um, and in fact, the, the stock market is sort of slightly positive as well. So I think the news was probably baked in. The headline numbers do look shocking, hmm. uh, but historically, Israel's economy is resilient. But
2: what you're saying is that there's been a drop in spending by consumers. And households have cut back on spending on big ticket items, obviously because of uh, the war in Gaza that is still going on. Businesses are not investing as much as earlier. And then there is a workforce where you see not many labour-oriented tasks can be done because many people have now been called to serve in the army. But what's your forecast then?
1: Well, my forecast is that um, we should see the economy in 2024 Uh, be positive at up uh, 2%. Um, I think, you know, clearly, if there is a prolonged war with Hamas, it is going to have significant economic Mm. and political problems over over the longer term. And certainly Moody's has cut its debt rating over the country. But what we have seen is that reservists have started to be released from duty. So the Labour force is recovering um, and and fifteen percent of the workforce is enlisted. Um, uh, they belong to the tech sector, and that is the driver of the Israeli economy,
2: which is now starting to come back. Stay with me, Lucy. We talk more about other parts around the world, but uh, let's take a listen to this thing in the region. <laughs> That is the sound of a ship being boarded by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea and it's exactly three months since the attack. Dozens of incidents have happened since then and most recently a Greek-owned vessel and a British-owned vessel were attacked. A US naval force is already patrolling the area and today the European Union launched its own mission to send warships to the region to protect international shipping. The mission is called Aspides, which is the Greek word for shield, And Céline Oysal, a French diplomat, spoke earlier to the BBC about it. Ships owned and uh, operated by European companies have been among those targeted by the Houthis. And so the mission is necessary, first of all, because the ongoing disruptions affect European economic interests. But it's not only that. I would like to recall that freedom of navigation has, has long been an EU priority. So we could say that beyond current events, uh, this mission, ASPIDIS, is also an additional piece in a growing patchwork of European efforts to become more active and present in this strategic area and in maritime security in in general. Additional piece in the maritime security in the region by French diplomat Céline Oisel. there. And it is important because freight companies like HAPEC Lloyd, which have told us that they will return Do the Red Sea only if the passage is absolutely safe for crews. So for now, the shipping crisis continues. And I have the BBC's Gideon Long, who is joining us in the studio about this. Gideon, uh, another statement, which is by the Egyptian president, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He said that revenues from Suez Canal had decreased by 40 to 50 percent so far this year because of this. Run us through the numbers that you're witnessing. Where do we stand now?
3: So normally, Davina, there would be around 500 ships in and around the Red Sea and the Suez Canal at any given time. Different kinds of ships, container ships, bulk carriers, carrying commodities, gas tankers, oil tankers. That number 500 has dropped by about 60% since the attacks started. That's according according to Lloyd's List Intelligence. And for some ships, like container ships, the drop is even more dramatic, around 80%. For gas containers, 100% because of the dangers involved. So they're all now going around the bottom of Africa. So huge disruption to shipping, but it's not only shipping companies that are affected. It's also the companies that rely on shipping. I've been talking to Smaruti Sriram. She's the chief executive of Supreme Creations. It's a company that makes reusable bags and packaging, and it sells them, it exports them from its factory in India to thousands of customers worldwide. This is what she told me.
1: We have a factory in Pondicherry, which is in South India, and our nearest port is Chennai. And that is one of the global hubs of sea shipments and air shipments. And about 90% of our sea shipments that have been leaving Chennai in the past three months have been affected by the Red Sea attacks. And it's not been an easy situation. Air freight rates have jumped to about 150% of what they used to be. The demand for trying to get things out of India has increased by about 80% via sea freight. So the costs are astronomical.
2: Well, this is what we were also talking about with Lucy. If the conflict goes on and it takes longer to resolve, Gideon, what happens to the Red Sea shipping crisis? What do you think?
3: Well, it's really difficult to tell, and I think this is part of the problem for companies. They just can't plan ahead. But earlier this month, we heard the CEO of Maersk, the world's biggest shipping company, saying that he expected the disruption to last at least until July. So it does seem as though some companies are starting to adjust their timelines. I spoke to Michelle Visa bockman She's the principal analyst at Lloyd's List Intelligence in London.
4: For the first time, we're seeing shipping executives start to look at what things will look like in six months' time, and that's just something that has evolved in the last couple of weeks as the realisation is arriving that despite the US and UK military strikes, this isn't really having the deterrent that governments hoped. We're seeing the recalibration of some oil trades, for example, diesel and jet fuel that was coming to Europe and the UK from the Middle East Gulf is now staying in the Asia region and imports from the US Gulf are now coming into Europe. So we're beginning to see the beginning of trading patterns changing
2: patterns changing in the beginning of that beginning, uh, uh, Gideon, but uh, let's also talk about the seafarers, the sailors, the sea captains who are caught up in all of this, risking their lives to transport goods through alternative routes as well.
3: Absolutely. They face the choice of either uh, sailing through the Red Sea, with all of the danger that that entails at the moment, or taking the long route around Africa, which adds around 10 to 15 days to their journey. And spare a thought, Davina, for the crew of the Galaxy Leader, that ship that we started, the uh, this item talking about three months after that ship was hijacked, that crew is still being held captive in Yemen.
2: Our hopes and prayers with the family of those crewmen. But thank you so much, Gideon, for joining us. You can hear the full report on our sister program, Business Daily, wherever you get your podcast. Lucy Goods continues to be with us. Lucy, uh, several global retailers are counting this delay in their shipment as well. What's the impact do you see? On uh, the supply chain across the world.
1: Well, in context, um, and, and Gideon sort of highlighted it as well. But you know, twelve percent of global trade passes through the Red Sea, so that is significant, and it could prove to be inflationary. Um, you know, particularly uh, not only in the sort of longer routes ships having to take and and the cost of doing that, but it's also you know, insurance premiums are going up. Um, You know, the ship that has now been uh, where the crew has been taken off it, uh, it's abandoned. But now that the owners are now having to think, well, how do we recover it? Yeah. Who's going to tow it out of out of the Red Sea? So there are lots and lots of problems. And the impact, I don't think we can calculate at this stage because we simply don't know how long this conflict is going to go on. But it's a very, very powerful area
2: Mm, um, for the global trade. Absolutely. We just have a comment from Germany's foreign minister, Annalena Berbock, who has said that the entire global economy is affected by the Houthi attacks on civilian maritime shipping. It's not just the European ships that are jeopardized and we need to protect them. So, Lucy, be with me as we talk about more stories and now to break in Czech Republic. That's uh, Prague, where farmers are driving tractors into the city centre, protesting about low prices they're getting for their produce and new EU environmental rules. Today's action is the latest in a string of protests across Europe and India by farmers who feel unfairly treated by the market and their respective governments. In Prague, people have been urged to work from home today if they can. And our correspondent, Rob Cameron, has been keeping an eye on this.
0: This morning, uh, several hundred uh, angry Czech farmers have driven into the city centre of Prague and parked their tractors on uh, both lanes of the main north south highway that runs through the city centre, right in front of the Agriculture Ministry. um, To make plain their anger at the uh, conditions for Czech farmers, now they say being made worse by the contents of the EU's Green Deal, which they say. Simply will make uh, the costs of farming so high that it will no longer be worth doing business. It's important to stress they are a minority of farmers and agricultural associations in this country. Most of them have stayed at home. That's because these farming associations that have organized these protests are linked to far right, pro Russia groups. The government has uh, said very much the same thing, and they said, um, you know, the farmers have claimed that we're refusing to negotiate. That's not true. And we're not going to be held hostage um, by these sort of protests.
2: That was the BBC's Rob Cameron. Now, the Czech Republic's main agriculture union, as Rob pointed out, Agrani Kamora has distanced itself from today's protests. Its leader is Jan Dolgel, And this is what he said.
5: I must say that we completely agree with uh, farmers in the fact that they're angry, that uh, they are complaining about bureaucracy. They are complaining about cheap imports. They are complaining about European Green Deal. We completely agree with that. Uh, we uh, had some issues with who's organizing the protest because the, uh, these people, they, they, were, they were and are still connected to uh, sort of a disinformation scene over here in Czech Republic. So we decided to stay out of it. For, for now, uh, but we're uh, organizing our own protests uh, on Thursday, and we're not saying that the, the government should resign. Uh, we're saying that um, there has to be some changes in Brussels. Do you
2: believe these protests have been hijacked by the right wing?
5: Absolutely, absolutely, but not not just the right wing. I believe some. Politicians from uh, the Communist Party are also behind that, you know, so maybe a maybe farmer even didn't know who's organizing it. And that was the problem. We knew that from the beginning. So once they, they realized that this demonstration has been hijacked by uh, extreme pulse of uh, the political spectrum, both left and right, they, uh, some of them, uh, I believe, it was more than 300 tractors. So uh, it was a majority of tractors which were present in Prague. They decided to go home. They they decided to stay out of it.
2: But this is not the last of the protests. Your organization is organizing another protest just later this week. Tell us about that and what are the issues that you're going to be raising then?
5: Yeah, uh, this protest is going to be uh, held on Thursday and uh, we are uh, going to be on the borders. We're um, going to block the borders for a little bit. So we're trying to say that uh, we have a problem with Ukrainian agricultural produce, which is uh, being imported to the European Union and which is uh, driving the prices down. And we are not saying that uh, they are just cheap, they are unfair because the the farmers in Ukraine uh, are uh, not supposed to uh, adhere to very strict regulations and rules that our farmers have to obey. So this is what we're trying to um, raise the awareness to. And maybe we're trying to change uh, the European Union's approach to Central and uh, Eastern Europe.
2: What is it that you are proposing to achieve then?
5: We're proposing to uh, to modify the deal between uh, Ukraine and European Union. Uh, we, we are proposing uh, some sort of uh, duties to be established again, because uh, we, we have to uh, somehow, we, we say stop the bleeding. The problem is that we have too much grain on our markets, And this uh, drives the prices down. And uh, we're basically telling the European Union to establish duties again. But what
2: you're saying is also leading to protectionism and that too on food, which will impact household budgets all across Czech Republic and Europe. If there are more duties imposed on cheaper grains that are coming in the country right now to meet food needs of millions of people
5: this isn't a problem with uh, european farmers not being able to produce cheaply the problem is that they can't you know because they, because we have a, a lot of regulations a lot of restraints given to us by the european green deal uh, because of that we 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 aren't able to produce cheaply but we are very much able to produce cheaply so uh, this is not protectionism this is common sense i would uh, i would describe it
2: but a common link of all the kind of solutions that you're talking about would then point towards the fact that people will have to pay more for their food, which again leads to higher cost of living.
5: Absolutely not. Uh, I give you an example from Czech Republic. The loaf of bread costs about uh, two euros here right now. uh, And it used to cost two euros, even when the price uh, of grain was double the amount that is right now in the market. So what it tells us is that... uh, the price of agricultural commodities doesn't really affect the price of food. So the only thing that it affects is the livelihood of farmers. And that is the problem. And that is why farmers were protesting in the streets today, because their livelihoods are at stake. Mm. That was
2: Jan Dolajal, who is leader of the main agriculture union of Czech Republic, Agrani Kamora. You with World Business Report from the BBC
1: World Service. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising Black student-athletes upside down.
0: I don't think we realize what the true flavor of Wyoming was back in 1969.
2: Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14.
0: There was a rebel Confederate flag being flown.
2: It was different. It was definitely different.
5: Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
2: Now to Africa's largest economy, Nigeria, where people are facing one of the worst cost-of-living crises. High fuel and food prices have driven the inflation to nearly 30% there. And this is hurting many small businesses, more so because in absence of a regular power supply, they rely on petrol or diesel gensets to get electricity. But now that cost is hurting them. Earlier today, I spoke with Ineola Savage, who's owner of a hair studio in Nigeria, who told me what she's facing.
6: Because of the inflation and prices of everything, there's dollar inflation. We can't buy our products at normal price anymore. Let's say we buy our got to be our glues by maybe 100,000 naira. Right now it's like 300,000 because times three, everything we're buying now is times three of what we used to get. As a last year, the power is not constant, and we have to be on generator. That's the alternative power that we use, and we have to put oil or diesel. Yes. We're cutting down on power usage because we can't afford to buy as much gas as we should. Right now, there's no power in the salon, so we can we keep the lights off when there's no clients. So when a client comes in,
2: we put it back. We put the lights mm-hmm. back. On. Enola, tell us about yeah. the cost. For wigs that you used to pay, and how has it changed?
6: To buy hair now. It depends on the quality of hair you want to buy. What we used to buy for hundred thousand before, what we used to buy for that price, we can't buy it anymore. We have to buy times two of it. I can't really give you a specific price because we have different kind of hairs that we sell, and we can't use the power the government has provided for us because it's not constant. We have to stay on generators. That's the alternative power that we use. And we have to buy fuel. And the price of fuel right now is 300% increase. So running the studio now is very, very expensive. And it's almost impossible to continue running
2: the studio. Are you saying that your customers, who used to come as well earlier, they've gone down in number?
6: They've gone down radically, radically in numbers. Because people have to think about the essentials first things they need to use to survive, which is food. So, wigging your hair or coming to the salon is luxury for some people. They'd rather use what they have in the house rather than coming to the salon and do a new hair and look good.
2: This must be having a devastating impact on people who are working in your salon as well. Are you yes, able to keep them on as your staff?
6: We don't have the power to keep everybody right now because not everybody can afford... To come all the way to the salon for to work because of the there's increase in transport, there's increase in feeding the salon, the studio is not making as much money. We can increase salary at the moment because there's not enough money coming in.
2: Are you able to get some help from the government or the banks? No, to keep going. Not
6: at all. Not at all. To get the fuel is expensive.
2: What will you do Everybody if you have to close down your salon?
6: That's what we're trying to avoid, not to close down. So we are offering up services for people who are to come over. We're giving them the experience of having it done in the house for the same price that they would
2: come to the salon for. But that would mean a significant cut in your earnings, isn't
6: it? Yes, it will. It will, but it will keep the light running.
2: There's a strike oh, today on. in Nigeria against this high cost of living. Do you think the government will listen and do you think anything will change?
6: No, I don't think so. Nothing is going to change. People have protested for bigger problems when people were being harassed and brutalised by police. So I don't think they will listen to people being hungry right now.
2: That was Eola Savage, who owns a hair studio in Nigeria. And on social media, I can tell you that the protest has started in southwest Nigeria, in Oyo State, where people can be seen holding placards with inscriptions like End food hike and inflation. Bola Tinubu referring uh, to the government in Nigeria. Don't forget your promises. The poor are starving. Now, when you have to pay for something, do you use cash or an app? If you're in India, and if you go to India like me, many people have started making online payments using what we call as digital wallets. PTM is among the largest wallet companies operating in the country, but it's now in trouble with the Central Bank of India. The BBC's Archana Shukla joined me from Mumbai earlier to tell me what it's all about.
4: PTM is India's one of the leading digital payments company. In fact, they are the ones who revolutionised making payments through just a click on your phone, where you know, people started using the app to make a range of transactions. They are buying household goods. They are even paying tuk-tuk drivers through Paytm. Uh, even for a street food, they are paying uh, through Paytm apps, Paytm and similar apps, and paying their utility bills like power or mobile phone payments and the other sorts of payments. So all of this is powered by a digital wallet. Essentially it's a small bank account, almost like a bank account. It's which people can receive deposits. They can keep money. They can make all the payments by scanning a QR code using their mobile phones as their identity. Merchants at their end also have digital wallets. They also have accounts where they're receiving these payments. So essentially, it's, everything is happening in a digital domain and all the payments transactions are happening you know, through
2: just a click of, uh, on your mobile phone. And we're talking about some 300 million plus users just with this particular app. So what went wrong then?
4: Paytm started a Paytm payments bank, which can take deposits of up to 2,400 US dollars. It can sell something like an insurance product or loan products through other third-party banks. So they started this bank, but in the last few years, there have been multiple times when the central bank has raised objections in how they've been doing the business, because there are concerns that this could lead to money laundering as well. That's why the Reserve Bank of India asked them to stop all banking services. Archana, then what happens now? Now, because of the central bank's ruling, um, which doesn't allow them to do any banking services, they are transferring all this back-end work to another brick-and-mortar bank called the Axis Bank, and that will become the back-end bank. So about 50% of all merchants' uh, merchant accounts on Paytm Payments Bank will need to be transferred onto this brick-and-mortar Axis Bank. So how much of the business for Paytm as a company is hurt with this then? It's the merchant accounts that Paytm Payment Bank had, which had deposits, which they could lend, which they could, uh, you know, utilize for other banking services. What was what was giving them profits? Now, those banking accounts will be transferred. So it will be a dent on the profitability of Paytm even Paytm app, a lot of merchants have started using other uh, payment systems like Google Pay or Phone Pay, which are the other rival uh, digital payment systems. So some of them are also transitioning out. They're saying we do not want, there is a lot of uncertainty and we are moving out and Paytm is losing business on that as well.
2: That was the BBC's Achna Shukla talking about why a popular digital app wallets company is uh, in trouble there. Now, Lucy Kutz continues to be with me. And Lucy, we started the programme talking about Israel's economy. Let me take you to the world's second largest economy, China. In Asia, the Lunar New Year, there is a crucial time to gauge the economy's health, but some mixed numbers coming out from there.
1: Yes, indeed. I mean, the consumer has started travelling again, so we've got that. Um, So it's up 34% year on year and 19% ahead of pre-pandemic. But spending data per consumer is lower. And so um, the Chinese economy now needs to rely on the consumer to save the economy. Uh, But unfortunate one headwind is we've got a deflationary environment. So prices are falling and Beijing is going to need to stimulate consumption to to rejuvenate uh, that economy.
2: And also the official data released by the State Administration of Foreign Exchange shows that foreign investments are also dipping uh, foreign direct investment, according to this metric, has been lowest since 1993. So not so much of money coming from abroad. Investors shying away from China. But Lucy Goods, thank you so much for joining us. And that's it for this edition of the World Business Report podcast with me, Devina Gupta. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. You can write to us at world.business at bbc.co.uk. See you next time. Namaste.